Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 15. I'll be in the NLT version. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law was good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I want to do what is wrong. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Let's pray together. Dear Lord, it is so often that I feel the things that Paul is talking about here in Romans, and we know that apart from you, we cannot do true good. So I pray that this morning as we learn more about fasting and obedience and what it means to um, practice these things that have fallen out of use in our culture, in our church culture, Lord, I pray that you would just open our hearts and our minds to trying something new, to trying something that is out of obedience to you, Lord. Um, We love you and we are so grateful that we are able to truly and freely worship here um, this morning in a country that we're allowed to do that. pray for believers all over the world, Lord, who do not have that same privilege. Um, I pray that we would recognize that we are not the only ones who um, look to you, Lord, and I pray that we would pray for the nations um, as we go about our days and our, and our um, see the things on the news that burden us and burden your heart, Lord. I pray for justice and mercy. In Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm happy to see you all this morning. How's everybody doing? Good? Great. Wonderful. Um, man, those verses ring true, uh, don't they? Haven't you ever felt like that? Man, I wish I could do the thing that I want to do. Uh, I keep finding myself doing the very thing that I said I would never do again. There's a battle, uh, a war going on in your mind, a battle of wants, of desires, of loves. What if, what if there's an ancient practice in the way of Jesus that can help reorient your desires and help you become more self-controlled? What if this practice isn't new, but as Carly mentioned, is rather ancient um, and has more recently fall, fallen out of practice? And today we're continuing uh, our four-week series that we're doing on the practice of fasting. And this is our second week of it. Over the four weeks, we are talking about four reasons why we fast. One, to offer ourselves to God. Two, to grow in holiness. Three, to amplify our prayers. And then four, to stand with the poor. And last week, we focused on the first, talking about offering ourselves to God. And uh, as a quick summary, we defined fasting simply as not eating. Uh, 
And we distinguish that between uh, the practice of abstinence, which is giving up something uh, on behalf of God in order to connect with God. Uh, so that might be fasting from social media, that could be fasting from caffeine or wine or TV or whatever uh, your thing of choice is there. And we spend our time looking at developing a holistic theology of the body, where we see ourselves as embodied creatures and not simply souls with like a meat suit, where our bodies matter, where Jesus came to earth in a body, a doctrine we call the incarnation. He resurrected in a body, a doctrine we call the resurrection, and all those who follow Jesus will also be resurrected in a body as well. And this is crucial for talking about fasting. And one of the things that we talked about last week as well is that just the sheer notion of fasting can be uh, bring up a lot of things for a number of us. It can bring up body image issues, uh, body shame. It can be a trigger point uh, for many of us. And while we touched on this uh, last week, over the next few weeks, uh, I may not be able to dive it into it as much. So I want to recommend to you a podcast if this uh, if that sounds like your story that's from uh, Practicing the Way, uh, who we're doing this series through. It's a podcast with a psychologist named Dr. Allison Cook, and she has studied, uh, she's done a lot of work with people who struggle with eating disorders and also has done a number of like historical studies on uh, the integration between fasting and mental health, particularly even more so with women in church history. Um, it's a super, super helpful, uh, thought-provoking practice uh, or podcast. And she, one of the things she talked about is that perhaps if there is something within you that as we talk about fasting, it's kind of a trigger point for a lot of body shame and body image things, um, it may not be the right season for you to embark on the practice of fasting. Um, it may actually be a really sweet invitation from God to develop a healthier relationship uh, with your body and even enjoy eating a nice meal uh, as an act of as an act of worship, and so if that's you, uh, I, I might offer a substitution practice. Um, maybe substitute it for uh, abstinence. In other words, like uh, a practice of saying, "All right, well, on this day of the week, I'm not going to look at social media, or I'm not going to watch TV, or I'm going to abstain from caffeine, or whatever the thing is for you." Um, while the benefits aren't exactly the same, and there's a difference in church history with these two things, um, I think they offer some similar benefits. So, with that disclaimer. Last week, we ended up talking about this theology of the body and getting the teachings of Jesus not only into our minds, but into our bodies. Uh, in other words, how many of you have ever uh, thought about becoming a kinder person? Anybody thought about that? Okay. Um, becoming a better, kinder person who's maybe less likely to respond hatefully in a moment. And then what happens when you get cut off in traffic? It's usually not that that comes out of you, right? So what we're talking about when we talk about these practices of Jesus are ways in which we move from it being something that's primarily in my head and into my hands and feet, where it becomes in some sense like an automaticity, something that comes out of my body without even having to think about it, that my natural response becomes one that is kind and gracious, that there actually is an invitation into the way of Jesus that can lead to these things, not only to becoming hypothetical, aspirational goals, but the natural overflow of who you're becoming. Um, one of my sp favorite uh, writers was a Catholic priest named Henry Nouwen, um, and he, in one of his books, he asked the question, uh, did becoming older make me more like Jesus? 
or something along those lines. That over the course of my life, am I actually becoming someone who is more like Jesus? Or do we reach a pinnacle in our life with Jesus where we know all the right things, but it hasn't actually translated into us becoming more loving and kind, generous people? And so what we're diving into over these weeks as we're talking about practicing the way of Jesus together is really that, moving it from here and getting it into your hands and feet getting it into your body. So with that, let me tell you some things that happen to the body when you fast. Uh, there are three distinct physiological stages your body goes through in fasting. In the first four hours after a meal, your body is feeding on energy from the food in your stomach. But around 16 hours in, so if you ate dinner at like 6 p.m., around 10 a.m. the next day, your body switches from burning glucose for energy to burning fat, what doctors call ketosis, which is incredibly good for you. Then around 24 hours in, if you stick with it that long, your body shifts into a state called autophagy, which is a term from the Greek which literally means self-eating. It begins to break down and cleanse your body of old, dead, or damaged cells, what some might refer to as zombie cells, the type of cellular material that causes maladies like cancer, aging, and chronic disease. Some doctors might refer to this process as the body's way of taking out the trash. As a result of your body's internal processes, there are all sorts of health benefits to fasting. Cleanse your body of toxins, increase your metabolism, reduce your weight, it can lower your insulin levels, inflammation and blood pressure, strengthen your immune system, reduce your heart rate, slow aging, protect against, and possibly reverse many diseases such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and a range of neurological disorders, including Alzheimer's. So it comes as no surprise that medical experts have been touting the positive effects of fasting. And as I mentioned last week, for most of us, it's probably more familiar to us to hear about the practice of fasting from either a medical or physiological perspective or perhaps um, from that of another faith tradition. But as I mentioned last week, the practice of fasting within the Christian tradition was the norm until about the 18th century with the Enlightenment, where Christians would typically fast from sunup to sundown on Wednesdays and Fridays. In addition to that, the practice of Lent uh, typically uh, was not a practice of abstinence or giving up social media or giving up something, but rather was a practice of not eating. It was a fast from sunup until sundown except the day of Sabbath. And this was uh, generally the way that things uh, things worked. And, and I mention all these health effects to, to mention that it is good for your health uh, if done correctly, but at the same time, when we as followers of Jesus engage fasting, our ultimate goal is not about these things. It's about intimacy with God. Now, this does not negate the health. It's both can be true. Pope, ben Pope Benedict uh, said this about fasting. In our own day, fasting seems to have lost something of its spiritual meaning and has taken on, in a culture characterized by the search for material well-being, a therapeutic value for the care of one's body. Fasting certainly brings benefits to physical well-being, but for believers, it is, in the first place, a therapy to heal all that prevents them from conformity to the will of God. In other words, fasting is ultimately about intimacy with God. Its aim is to produce holiness within us. Holiness meaning to be set apart, that everything within us that is not in alignment with God in his ways would be cast out. Holiness is kind of a loaded word. There's one way of thinking about holiness as is wholeness. As practicing the way says, what health is to the body, holiness is to your soul. 
And by that, I mean your whole person. Fasting is a way to purify or cleanse you. I was uh, having uh, lunch with a friend of mine who was uh, Muslim on Friday, and I was just asking him about his uh, tradition of fasting. Uh, and if you're uh, familiar, uh, Muslims typically practice fasting during the month of Ramadan. And I was asking him, how long have you been doing it? And he said, I've been doing it since I was about 13. Um, and I asked, what is that? Why? Why do you do it? What's that like for you? And he referred to it as a season of purification. In essence, what fasting aims to do, it's a way of purification, of revealing even what is ugly within us and inviting the transforming power of God to move in our lives. Arthur Wallace, who wrote this book called God's Chosen Fast, said, Fasting is a divine corrective to the pride of the human heart. It is a discipline of the body with a tendency to humble the soul. It's, in essence, a way of your whole person being purged of self-defeating cycles of sin and shame. It's a way to be sanctified, for God to purge what is unlike him from us, sin, shame. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Fasting is a practical way, not the only way, but one way to consecrate ourselves to God, to dedicate ourselves to his purposes. And the saints have for a long period of time attested to the power of fasting to grow in holiness. St. Augustine of Hippo, when asked why fast, said this. He said, because it's sometimes necessary to check the delight of the flesh in respect to licit pleasures in order to keep it from yielding to illicit joys. Uh, in other words, by training ourselves not to say yes to everything that looks good in a moment, we're more able to say no to things that aren't good for us when they come up. Or here's St. Leo the Great from the 5th century, who was the Bishop of Rome. Fasting gives strength against sin, represses evil desires, repels temptation, humbles pride, cools anger, and fosters all the inclinations of a goodwill, even unto the practices of every virtue. Thomas Akempis uh, from the medieval period said of fasting, Restrain from gluttony, and thou shalt the more easily restrain all the inclinations of the, the flesh. As practicing the way says, when you read the great ones of church history, you quickly realize that all of them, or most all of them, believed that without fasting, it was almost impossible to re reach a high level of holiness. And pretty much all of them practice fasting with regularity and intensity. And as a quick plug for that podcast again, um, they mention, uh, with Dr. Allison Cook, Dr. Allison Cook mentioned one particular uh, woman, uh, St. Catherine of Siena, um, who fasted so much that her superiors in her community actually told her that you really need to stop fasting like this because this is doing harm to your body. Um, so not all of it is, is good. I just want to emphasize that again. But what they saw, generally speaking, was that the stomach could be an enemy or a potential ally in the fight against sin. Uh, for example, uh, in the list of like the seven deadly sins, does anybody know what the first one is? Gluttony. Good. Uh, it's hopefully was, maybe I was a leading question because I'm talking about fasting. But Christian thinkers have long said that an undisciplined appetite has a domino effect across all the areas of our life. Particularly noted is the connection between Gluttony and sexual immorality due to the connection of our capacity to steward these natural desires of our body for food and sex in a healthy or unhealthy way. To make sense of this, let's parse out a little bit more of what this uh, passage that we read 
earlier said. Um, in our last, uh, last week, I mentioned Paul's line to the Corinthians, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, or your body is a home for God. But let's read again from Romans 7. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Man, this passage rings true for me. Do you ever feel like this, trapped in the same patterns, wishing that you would just stop? Paul here gets into the self-defeating cycle that has to do with our body, what he calls a body of death. So which is it, Paul? Is our body the temple of the Holy Spirit, or is it a body of death? Both. In Paul's theology, in your body, in your person as a whole, you have a spirit, meaning that a part of you is a home for God, where your spirit is one with God's spirit, and you have a part of you that is infected by a fatal disease called sin. And the word Paul uses here to refer to this is the flesh. And your flesh isn't just what we would refer to as our body. Your flesh has to do with your whole person. Some translations might use the term sinful nature, others as self-indulgence, Augustine called the flesh our disordered desires. And my point is, our fight is not against the body. Our fight is for the body. Our fight is against the flesh. And the call of Jesus is to, in his own language, take up your cross. Paul calls it crucifying the flesh. And it's a theme all throughout Paul's letters. He writes to the Galatians, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He writes to the Colossians, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires, and greed. So how do we do that? Have you ever tried to stop sinning? Thinking, I'm just going to quit. How is it working? I'm not, meaning that, I'm not meaning that totally is like a leading question. I'm just like genuinely asking. Uh, willpower can be super helpful, but we need something outside of us for help. Um, I'm reminded of uh, Celebrate Recovery, um, which is, I don't know, every time I've gone to a Celebrate Recovery meeting, I think this is like what church is supposed to be like. Um, I'm reminded of the first couple steps of Celebrate Recovery. Number one, we admitted we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors, that our lives had become unmanageable. Number two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Number three, we made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God. Then it goes on to talk about searching and making a moral inventory of ourselves, admitting to God, to ourselves, and to another of the exact nature of our wrongs, and asking God to help us and more than that as well. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. In other words, you can't use the flesh to defeat the flesh. You need the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Willpower absolutely can help, of course. But what about battles against things like ingrained addiction, outbursts of anger based on trauma? Um, this may be somewhat of a, uh, this is a pretty personal example, but I remember not that long ago, 
um, I was just like praying and talking with God about some ingrained things in me, some visceral reactions that I would have to things that I really hated, that really bothered me. Um, seemingly things that wouldn't upset most people were uh, doing something violent in my soul. And I remember I was like praying on my way to the, the gym one day and just saying, God, like, will I always deal with this? Because I just, I'm tired of it. This has been the story of my whole life and I feel like I'm coming to know you more. And I just felt this like tender invitation and kindness from the Lord saying that over the course of your life, I am going to heal you. And I know for me, I remember just being in accountability groups and stuff growing up like in high school and whatever, like in my youth group. Um, a lot of the conversation for the guys around like issues of lust and struggles with pornography or like whatever it was were pretty much just like you are always going to struggle with this. Um, and it can be the battle that you face your whole life, but I actually do deeply believe that the Lord wants to heal you um, of not only um, what you're doing, but actually wants to start to transform your desires to long for him more than the things that you once used to long for. That there is a sense, uh, what theologians have talked, to, uh, talked about for a while, there's a sense in which when we put our trust in Jesus, we are saved from our sin. We come to life in God. There's also a sense in which we are presently being saved. We are being healed. We are being made right, being formed more into Christ's likeness. And there's a sense in which one day we will be saved, that all of these nasty thoughts and feelings and urges within us will be done away with forever in eternity with God. It actually is possible. You will never be, this side of eternity, perfect, but it is actually possible to, over the course of your life, to start to exemplify the fruits of the Spirit more so rather than less so. And one of the ways that we draw on this power is through the practices of Jesus. And as I talked about last week, and we talk about whenever we talk about these spiritual practices, what we're aiming to do is to learn to live our lives the way that Jesus did his. What did he do? One of the things is he fasted. Uh, while he never commanded it, he did do it, and he assumed that his disciples would as well, because it, fasting is so helpful because it gives us space to starve the flesh and draw on the power of God to transform us. Fasting is a way to feed your spirit and starve your flesh. And there are multiple things that happen to us as we fast. First, as we are fasting, we are weaning off the pleasure principle. Because underneath our desire for food is an even deeper desire, what psychologists might refer to as the pleasure principle, which is to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. And so much of our culture is around, if it feels good, do it. I probably don't have to tell you that not everything that feels good in a moment is good for you long term. And not everything that feels bad in a moment uh, is bad for you long term. In fact, you can probably think of a number of examples where someone did something selfishly because they thought it would feel good for them and inflicted damage on another person. Immense damage on them and on themselves, if we're honest. And so through fasting, we mature beyond the pleasure principle, and we learn how to do the right thing even when it's hard and how to be content even when we don't get what we want. And secondly, fasting works to reveal to us what's in our hearts. Uh, if you've ever uh, tried fasting, uh, probably what you would, uh, or even just a practice of abstinence in general, but um, you've heard the term hangry before? When you first start getting into the practice uh, in particular, that tends to be uh, what comes up. 
Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline, writes, fasting reveals the things that control us. Fasting teaches us so much about ourselves. It's very humbling. And as we do it, all of these like urges and desires and primal things start to come up. And it gives us the opportunity to take it to God, to take this stuff that is exposed in all of its ugliness and bring it to him. And in doing so, be set free. Because one of the things that fasting does is the third thing. It helps us wean off immediate gratification. So um, i I brought with me, um, I thought about bringing a cookie or something, but I just brought a granola bar. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in myself as I've engaged in fasting over a regular uh, rhythm in my life um, is that I have a tendency whenever I see something, it could be with my phone, but I'm going to use food because we're talking about fasting. Um, I see it, and without even thinking about it, I'm already doing it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I've got a bag of chips, and before I even think about it, my hand's deep in the bag of chips, and I'm eating it, and then I realize I'm not even hungry. I'm actually just, for me, in that scenario, I'm just bored. And I feel uncomfortable being bored at that moment. So what I've noticed for me uh, when, I, when I fast is I, I see the granola bar or whatever laying out there, and I think, oh, man, that looks good. I would like that. I want that. Okay, I'm not going to do that. I actually remember the first, one of the first times I tried fasting. Um, I did really good on all my meals, and then in my desk um, at work, I was in youth ministry, but I don't know why I had this. I had Skittles on my desk. <laughs> it's not setting yourself up well. Um, and I remember I walked in, and before even thinking about it, I grabbed a handful and just like popped them in my mouth and ate them <laughs> without even thinking about it. And one of the things that fasting does is it helps put us in a degree of separation between what we think we want and what we actually do to make a more informed, intentional decision. Uh, the Bible Project... Um, offers this uh, framework that we find in Genesis chapter 3, um, and I think they're using it in reference to sin, what we see uh, Eve, uh, Adam and Eve do in the beginning that pops up in a number of places in the Bible. It's a four-part framework. So first, she sees the tree, uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She sees uh, that it was good. So seeing is the first part. Sees that it was good for eating, and it's pleasing to the eye, or beautiful, attractive. Attraction is the second part. It's also desirable for gaining wisdom. Desire would be the third part. And then fourth, then she would choose to go and take and eat and then give it uh, to Adam. So we see this four-part framework of seeing, attraction, desire, and then a choice as uh, I think it was Ariana Grande said, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. <laughs> yep. What I've noticed uh, in my life um, is that fasting actually helps to put a degree of separation with all of these things. And that there is a longer gap between me seeing something and me choosing to do it. Now, I Ultimately, for me, the, the, what I do with my food, I mean, that's obviously very important, but I, I'm thinking about conversations that I would have uh, even with my wife or something along those lines if I'm feeling frustrated or agitated or, um, you know, I'm getting cut off in traffic or whatever my thing is that would upset me, that what fasting does in addition to with food, it causes a longer degree of separation between, all right, I see what's happening. This looks like the good option, responding snappily. I really want to do that to show that I'm right, to is that actually what's best for me? And it puts this degree of separation. And then fourth, with that, fasting works to reorder our desires. Not only does it put space, but it helps to cause us to desire 
different things. That I find myself wanting to sin less and wanting to be holy more. My desires uh, for greed or to hold on to bitterness go down, and my desires for purity, kindness, compassion go up. God is at work deep within us to do by his power what our willpower cannot possibly do to transform us. And on that note, fifth, fasting works to draw on the power of God to overcome sin. Fasting is a discipline, and as any good discipline, it's a way of increasing our willpower muscle. It does kind of two things with this. One, it helps with self-control. Helps me to say no to things that would not ultimately be good for me. And then secondly, it helps me with self-discipline, to say yes to things that would be good for me, even if in the moment they don't seem that attractive to me. Disciplines like fasting are a way to like grow in self-control and self-discipline. But again, willpower alone is not strong enough to break the chains of the flesh. And when we talk about this from a faith perspective, when I fast, I'm not just doing it for me to grow in this on my own. I'm asking God to transform me by offering him uh, this hunger that I have. And as we come to God and give him our weakness, he comes to us and he gives us his strength. So if you wanted to summarize all that, you could just say fasting is a way to turn your body from an enemy into an ally in your fight against the flesh. Fasting is hard, and maybe not everybody would agree with this, but um, I find that it does get easier. You're in essence picking a fight with your flesh on a regular basis, but the more you do it, your flesh is weakened, and you get this beautiful connection with God. It's really saying, God, I'm not going to rely on my own strength. I am going to rely on you. Would you sustain me? Would you fulfill me? And before we end, remember this, what we talked about last week. The ultimate aim of fasting is Jesus himself. Yes, it's to grow in holiness and let him form you, but ultimately, it's Jesus to see, to look at, to behold the beauty of God himself. And again, uh, you do not have to fast. It's not commanded by Jesus or any of the writers of the New Testament, but pretty much all the saints have long said, not only is it powerful, it's essential. And it's a way of growing uh, in holiness. And so as a practice, this, these four weeks, what we're uh, talking about, our church has a regular rhythm, at least those for who call our church uh, their home and are members of our church. We fast together on the first of the month uh, from well, it depends on each person, but mine generally is like sun up until dinner time. Um, and as I mentioned last week, to be transparent, I have little kids, so we eat early um, for whatever that is worth. Uh, but over the course of these four weeks, what I want to invite you to do is to join with us in fasting on a weekly basis. Christians typically fasted Wednesdays and Fridays um, for whatever it's worth. If you want to join with me, my day is Wednesday. Um, from sun up until about dinner time. Um, if fasting is new for you, I would encourage you to just start by like, uh, once praying and asking if this is what the Lord would even have for you, if you have a healthy relationship with your body, um, it may not be the thing for you in this, at this time, and there's no, uh, there's no shame in that. Uh, there's also a practice of feasting uh, as well that's really important um, that we'll talk about another time. But if you haven't fasted much before, you may want to try fasting from breakfast, fasting until lunch, fasting until 3 p.m., uh, crawl before you try to run. Um, Don't be like me, which is right after I started fasting, like on a weekly basis, a couple months in, I was like, I'm going to do a 21-day fast, except Sabbath, Um, which actually was really, it was actually really beautiful. Um, It was during that time that we ended up, 
uh, driving by, I ended up driving by this building and coming in and it ended up being open. We were trying to find a place to meet and it was a cool God thing. Um, but I went a little too hard, uh, too fast, and it made me not desire it as much. Um, so I would just encourage you, if it's not new to you, if it's new to you, to start uh, really small, um, but to join with us over these next several weeks and fast um, once a week. Um, and if that's not the practice for you, just pray and talk with the Lord. Maybe consider a practice of abstinence, giving up social media or something along those lines, uh, one day a week. And as I invite the, the band to come back up, I want to end by telling you a, a story. Um, as I mentioned, one of the things that fasting is, it's about consecrating ourselves to God, dedicating ourselves to Him. And a couple weeks back, I got the chance to go to Asbury University, um, where in February, they had an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, um, where after a typical chapel service, there were maybe like 1,500 students there, and almost all of them outside of, um, maybe it was a dozen or so, um, maybe... I don't remember the exact number, but most people left. But a couple students stayed back and they prayed and they were just, they did not leave. And after a while, they started just like getting up in front of people and confessing their sin, like radical, bold, really vulnerable stuff. And this led to an ongoing uh, worship service over 16 days. And um, it was radically unimpressive. But what... I heard from a number of the people that um, had been praying for this for a long time and who helped kind of steward this moment and this movement. It was like when they walked in, entering into like the throne room of God. That as they came into this place and encountering who God is, they didn't even want their sin anymore. They were calling out to God, kill this nastiness within me. I do not want this. I want you. And it was fascinating to hear the stories um, because, like I said, it went on 16 days and they ended up feeling like it was time to just, like, send people out. And I think it was over maybe 100,000 people that descended on this tiny town of Wilmore, Kentucky. Uh, and they were, like, they really safeguarded the moment. They would have all these big names and people with agendas coming in. And um, the worship was, like, simple, uh, was unimpressive. They didn't even have, they didn't have screens for lyrics. Um, apparently after a while of doing uh, worship, they just, they had a team that just started praying and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to them people in the room who could lead worship. I'm not going to do that to you today. Um, but they would pray and ask, Holy Spirit, would you show us who in this place can lead worship? And nine times out of the 10, when they went out to talk to someone, they said, yeah, I actually, I actually lead worship back home. And you would think what they do is they go and they put them back in a practice room, you know, let's practice, make sure everything's good. That's not the route that they went. Over the course of a couple days in, they developed, um, or the Holy Spirit led them to do what they referred to as a consecration room, uh, where they went in and they prayed, they confessed their sin, they like, asked God to meet them in a powerful way, and they'd be in there, depending on how long, 30 minutes, two hours, four hours. That was the preparation for getting up and leading worship. Because the purity of heart was more important than the performance. That it's God's throne, not ours. As Henry Nouwen wrote, every time you close another door, be it the door of immediate satisfaction, the door of distracting entertainment, the door of busyness, the door of guilt and worry, or the door of self-rejection, you commit yourself to go deeper into your heart and thus deeper into the hearts of God. 
In other words, that as we bring these issues of sin to God, it's not just something to like be here and like beat yourself up about. It's actually so that you encounter more of who God is. That it actually become, become it may sound strange to you, but a beautiful invitation from God when there is sin within you that is revealed. Like, thank you, God, for showing me this. I bring it to you. Um, and that he gives us more of who he is and more of his presence. I can, I'm reflecting particularly on one experience that I had where um, I was in a, uh, a worship and prayer gathering and they, the pastors, um, it was for pastors, so it was, I guess, one of the pastors in the room, uh, came up front and was saying, you know, I sense that there's some people who are struggling with this sin. And my first thought was, you know, that was me a while back, but like, I'm pretty good. And thank God, like, I'm, I'm doing really good. And of course, as soon as you say that, it was like the Holy Spirit piercing my heart, and I went, oh, mm, oh, no, 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 that's not, that's not good. <laughs> uh, it's actually more than I thought. And uh, the invitation that they gave um, in this gathering was to go and like, not only confess it to God, but to confess it to a friend who was there. And I was like, okay, well, I'm here, feel it, I'm not going to hold on to this. I do not like this sitting in this shame and guilt, and I don't think that's what the Lord has for me. So I went and I shared it with my, uh, with my friend Brandon. Um, and he started praying over me, and honestly, I don't even totally remember what he said. Um, but as, um, as he was praying, the band started playing, um, why am I blanking on the name? What's, Anna, what's the song that you sing for Caleb? You're my all in all. Um, they started singing this like older worship song, You Are My All in All, which is like the song that since Caleb was, our two-year-old was born, uh, Anna has like sang over him to get him to sleep. Um, and they started playing this song randomly. And of course, I hear that and I am just picturing myself as baby Caleb being like held in the tender arms of my father. And I'm picturing myself right before I left for this trip, like me singing that song over my kid, holding them. And I, of course, just start weeping just with this radical encounter of God of rest, recognizing I desperately need him. You don't have to pretend like you have it all together. You don't have to pretend like you've arrived at some level of holiness and now you are done dealing with all of this dirt and baggage that's within you. If anything, what I notice in, in my life with Jesus, I was literally talking with someone about this last week. Every time I find myself hitting the bottom, I realize I've got further and further and further to go in order to get this intimacy with God. And so what we're gonna do um, is I want to invite you to bring your stuff, your sin, your shame, the lies that you believe, bring it to God. Um, I wanna make this available uh, because uh, as well, um, if you need someone to talk to or bring those things to, uh, I will also be available. There's a passage in the book of James uh, that talks about uh, Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so you may be healed. I encourage you uh, to find someone that you can share those things with uh, in addition to God and allow God to move through that conversation. Uh, that part is more uncomfortable, uh, but it is so worthwhile. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna sing a couple songs in response to this about the holiness of God. And so I encourage you as we sing to bring these things to him. Will you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit. Would you sanctify us?
Would you purify us? Would you reveal to us everything in us that is unlike you? Would you reveal to us the sin, the biases, the lies that we believe about who you are and who we are and who other people are? Would you, God, would you reveal any resentment that some of us have in the room towards others? that we're holding on to that seems to, uh, not only we're holding on to it, it seems like we're trying to let go, but it seems like it's got a grip on us. God, I pray for those in the room that that's the case, they would bring it to you and that they would just experience the freedom that comes from an encounter with your presence, that where the spirit of the Lord there is, is, there is freedom. May that be true of this place in this moment right now. God, for those in the room that just feel like stuck, May you just remind them that you are with them, that you are guiding them, you are holding them. And to fear not for you are with them. God, I just pray in this moment um, that you would reveal to us sin, the shame, the lies, the bitterness, the anger, the resentment that is not like you. And that you would forgive us and draw us in close to you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand and sing, but if you need to sit and process with God, feel free to do that too. Hey, thanks for watching the service. We pray that it bless you and helps you grow closer to God. If you are in the Nashville area, we'd love for you to join us sometime. If you're not in the Nashville area, we'd love to help you get connected with the local church if you don't already have one. We pray that God blesses you this week and that he grows you closer in your relationship with him and with your community, that he uses you in a powerful way to be a vessel of his good news in everywhere that you go. May God bless you.